For outsiders, the publishing industry is wrapped in mystery. How do books get published? Who decides which books get published? And how well are the books actually selling? How are they really selling? And how much money does everyone make? How much money do the authors make? And how much money do the publishers make? Once you get into the industry, you learn a bit, but not as much as you might think, because a lot of information stays secret, sometimes even within the same company. Now, typically in secretive industries, there's three ways that the secrets get out. Hacks, whistleblowers, and court cases. And the gold standard of these three is court cases, because hackers and whistleblowers have complicated emotions and motivations, and sometimes they choose what gets shared and what doesn't. But on a court case, you have two sides, and this is important, perjury, (laughs) which means if you lie intentionally, you get in very big trouble. Because of this, it's not often that cases actually go to trial, because big publishers, big companies of all sorts don't like their secrets getting aired for all to see. But we had a rare opportunity in the publishing industry where Penguin Random House, one of the largest publishers ever in the history of publishing, was taken to court by none other than the Department of Justice. (laughs) Penguin Random House was attempting to acquire Simon & Schuster, which makes this even better because we get a glimpse not just into Penguin Random House, but also into Simon & Schuster. And the court case went for three weeks and many secrets were aired and much dirty laundry was spelled. So what did we learn from this trial and how do these big publishers work? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books and make a living writing books worth talking about. And some of the best journalistic coverage of the DOJ VPRH case came from the Hot Sheet newsletter. And if you're not familiar with the Hot Sheet, it's like a Substack, but it's been around longer than Substack, and it covers industry news. And it's one of the only forms of industry news that I personally pay for. And so joining us today is the founder and editor of the Hot Sheet, Jane Friedman. Welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. So for people who are just now hearing that this trial happened, what happened? <laughs> well, this was a action by the government on antitrust grounds to stop the merger of two of the big five New York publishing houses. It was a case that was very unique in the sense that it wasn't pleading harm to consumers maybe indirectly, it was trying to prove harm to authors. And so this made the case highly relevant to me, highly relevant to all sorts of authors, at least traditionally published ones, but I would argue everyone and not just traditionally published. Now, that makes it unique just by itself, the fact that they were trying to prove harm to the authors. But more than that, it was focused on the top 2% of authors. And this was made clear from the outset, like this was not a secret. And when we talk about the top 2% of authors, we're talking about people who earn six and seven figures for book advances. And these are the sorts of deals where often the authors are not all that concerned with book sales. (laughs) They're concerned with getting their money up front, as are the agents who are facilitating these deals. So the government was trying to prove that these top 2%, they would see a decline in their advances. So that was the case that was brought and was successfully argued. 
I do want to do one clarification. So when you're saying top 2% of authors, that's not top 2% of all authors. That's top 2% of traditionally published authors. So it's excluding from its sample set the probably 50 to 80% of authors on Amazon that are independently published, most of whom are not making $250,000 <laughs> per book. So really, I would say it's the top like 0.1% of authors, depending on your sample size. Yes. And in fact, if we want to get really strict about it, it may be like 2% of deals or contracts. And of course, all of this, they were able to calculate through their discovery and they had to stop somewhere, right? <laughs> so they were mainly looking at the biggest publishers when they were, when they were making these calculations. And one of the interesting things about this trial was that it really demonstrated how much this industry is governed by the Pareto distribution. So this is like the hardest thing to talk about on a podcast because I'd love to show you a graph, but I want you to just picture a bell curve, right? That We've all seen the bell curve distribution where you've got average in the middle and your tails curve off into either side. Well, the Pareto distribution is like that, but chopped in half. <laughs> so you have a tiny percentage of people who make all of the money or a tiny percentage of the stars that have all of the mass, right? It applies to celestial bodies because the same principle applies. And then you have almost everyone who makes almost nothing, right? So you tend to see Bredo distributions where there's a feedback loop. So the more gravity you have, the more stuff you can pull into your orbit, which then makes your gravity higher, which allows you to pull more stuff into your orbit. The more money you have, the more money you can make, which gives you more money, etc. And this distribution is really hard for us to wrap our heads around. We can imagine standard distribution because it governs height and weight and things that we look at. But the reality is, is if uh, authors were by height, how much money they made, the top author's head would be scraping the bottom of the moon. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> else would be normal heighted. And so what were some of the kind of the surprising Pareto distribution elements that this trial brought forth? Well, you know, for me, I have to say, you know, someone who's studied the industry for two decades plus, I don't know that I saw a lot of shocking things come out of this that I didn't <laughs> already know. But I think for the general public, even for lots of authors, regardless of, of where they're at in this ecosystem, I think there, there were surprises. And I think there was often this sense that the emperor has no clothes because you had this really weird dynamic where the biggest publisher in the country was essentially arguing, we're not that good at business. <laughs> we're not, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, there's so much luck involved. Predicting a bestseller is like predicting the weather. You can't take credit for it when it works. And so <laughs> you've got these just really contradictory sorts of attitudes on the stand from the same people working at the same companies. But I have a lot of sympathy for where these people are sitting in the business. It is really hard to predict a bestseller. And one of the things that I think both sides agreed on is that most books fail. So I think 85% was the figure that got thrown out. And by fail, I mean, we have to talk about that a little bit loosely. It means that maybe they didn't live up to the publisher's expectations. It could have been a success for the author in some regard. It doesn't mean the book was of terrible quality. It just means that it didn't necessarily contribute to the publisher's bottom line in a way that would make the company or the business sustainable over the long term. That if every book performed like that, the publisher would go out of business. 
Because it's tricky because it's not predicting success as if it's some binary of like, oh, this book's going to be popular and this book's not going to be popular. It's like, no, how popular is this book going to be? So let's say you've got a book and you're anticipating that it's going to sell a million copies in the first few months. Well, that means printing it in China, getting your cost per copy down to, let's say, a dollar per copy for a hardback and shipping it on a slow boat to get over here. And so now you've got these copies really cheap. But you just spent a million dollars printing the million copies at $1 per copy. And the book is released and it sells 200,000 copies. Like, you know, from one perspective, 200,000, that's a big number. And it is. But there's $800,000 worth of books sitting in a warehouse somewhere that didn't sell, right? That maybe is the entire profit margin lost in the warehouse that's now unrecoverable or not easily recovered. And on the other hand, maybe you were anticipating that it was going to sell 20,000 copies and there was demand for 200,000. And now you missed out on the 180,000 that didn't happen. Because of the nature of printing and the consolidation amongst printers, which is different from publishers, although not always, which also came out in the trial, you have to predict the future. And that's really hard. It is very hard. And since the pandemic, some of these practices that you just described, where you're printing a lot with the expectation of a certain outcome, publishers have had to really take much more calculated risks and pull back on the number they're printing. I mean, this started even when I was working in traditional publishing, where it was, we got to reduce our warehousing and inventory costs. We need to move to just-in-time printing. Of course, that was a disaster during the pandemic for lots of reasons. (laughs) Just-in-time is corporate speak for very fragile (laughs) supply chains. (laughs) Exactly. But that's kind of where the industry is. And you have these huge, powerful corporations like Ingram really pushing publishers to do print on demand and have fulfillment that doesn't rely on fragile supply chains. But certainly publishers are having to really be more disciplined, especially with some of the changes happening with Barnes and Noble, where they don't take books for display, pay for display any longer. And marketing is obviously changing. Yeah. And let's pause real quick there, because I think that's a practice a lot of people don't understand. And I'll occasionally have somebody email me and they're like, how do I get into airport bookstores? How do I get into Barnes and Noble? And it used to be you get on the phone with the right person and you write a check with the right number of zeros. (laughs) Boom, you're on the table. And Barnes and Noble has realized, at least from my perspective, that they're getting outcompeted by local bookstores, that they're doing too much decision-making centrally, and they're not accommodating local tastes. And they've finally discovered that New York is not representative of the whole country. (laughs) And if you want to sell in Cincinnati, if you want to sell in Albuquerque, those different cities are going to want different books. And if you allow the local stores to make their own buying decisions, they can better serve their local audience and actually sell more books rather than having somebody from corporate saying you have to put this book on the shelf because we've got this big check saying that that's what you have to do. And that has really changed the game because now you have to earn your way onto the Barnes & Noble shelves. But if you want to pay to get placed, there are other bookstores that will be happy to take your money. <laughs> Airport bookstores, for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so just realize that, that that's a, a shift. I don't know if that came out in the trial, but that's been happening in the background. And yes. speaking of marketing and sales, I, th- I feel like that's one of the big surprises uh, for me was to learn that only 2% of revenue goes into marketing. Is that true? <laughs> it, yes, it is true. And if you compare that to other consumer goods industries, it does seem 
paltry. Now, I did have someone, a colleague of mine, who really pushed back on the idea that this was a failure. He said, there are a lot of books that you're not going to put a lot of money behind them for lots of different reasons. And he also said, there's a lot of marketing that happens in the traditional publishing ecosystem that doesn't get assigned a dollar amount. So how can you apply a dollar amount to the fact that you're in a publisher's catalog and it's being seen by XYZ people for sure? How do you put a dollar amount on having nationwide distribution in certain mass retailers? He made the argument, which I think was sensible, which is we're really talking about hard costs related to advertising or merchandising or sending out advanced review copies and things of that nature. And in fact, a lot of authors don't see this invisible support network that publishers have you know, been working on for more than 100 years at this point, the big <laughs> ones anyway. So it does have an effect. But yes, yeah, so if you just look at the budget item for marketing of books, it is quite low indeed. I mean, what that tells me as a marketing professional is that these big publishing companies aren't able to scale the marketing. So the low cost things that they're doing, putting a book in the catalog or whatever, those are working. But if they wanted to spend more money, that money wouldn't return more money. <laughs> so profitable advertising, you want to do more, right? If you're spending a million dollars on ads and it brings in $2 million worth of profit, you want to spend more, right? You want to keep pushing it until you find that equilibrium point. But if the advertising isn't working or the marketing efforts in general aren't working, then you don't want to spend it because you're just wasting that money because it's not increasing the sales. And so... For me, that's very obvious that there's a disconnect between the big publishing companies and the consumer because they don't know how to reach the consumer with additional money, right? If you're like, hey, here's a check for a million dollars, they're like, we don't know how to spend this. We've already bought all of the airport bookstore space we can buy. <laughs> so I guess we'll spend it on Facebook ads. But if they don't know how to do that well, if they don't know how to target and who to target and what messaging to put and which regions will respond, that money can go poof. Very quickly. Facebook can make money disappear faster than anybody. <laughs> so you have to be very careful how to spend that money. Yes. Yeah, so what you've just identified is the Achilles heel of the biggest publishers, for sure. And when I say big publishers, I'm talking about those that have lots of different imprints. They're publishing in every conceivable category, which makes every book very unique in that it has to reach a different audience, so the audience for this erotica book is going to be quite different from the one about your financial health. But to go back to my original point, publishers have, for most of their legacy, have been accustomed to making books pop with industry insiders. Those could be librarians, booksellers, reviewers, tastemakers, you know, today it could be TikTok influencers, whoever that is, whoever actually reaches the reader, they've honed their skills at getting books in front of those people. But obviously, the landscape has changed <laughs> in the last 20 years, which has made things increasingly challenging for publishers who are still kind of looking at some of these old methods. And let me say also, authors still tend to look at some of these more traditional methods and want them, like they want to see their publisher advertising in the New York Times 
even if it doesn't work. <laughs> the print paper. <laughs> right, exactly. Which everyone almost agrees, even if you get a review in the New York Times, it doesn't necessarily move the needle on sales. And so can you imagine how much worse it is just to have an ad? But like I said, I have some sympathy for the predicament they're in because the big publishers are publishing books that all have different audiences. And they're, they haven't been built in a way to capitalize on prior knowledge or prior wins of those audiences. And if you're publishing a thousand titles a year and each one requires a unique marketing plan, well, they don't have enough staff. They've never had enough staff to facilitate that. And so what you see happening, and this certainly came out in the trial, is this wait and see attitude. Well, let's see how the market responds, which is, oh, <laughs> you know, it's just, if an author hears that from their publisher, you know, they're not going to do anything. They're going to wait and see if it gains traction somehow on its own, maybe by luck or because of the author's efforts. And then they'll start putting money behind it where they see that it's gaining traction. And that that is no way to market. Yeah. And I want to underline that because this is really important to understand. If you're an author and you're wanting a publisher, what this means is when your book is launched, if you're with one of the big five that's using this strategy, they will spend no money to promote your book, which means your launch is all on you. Yeah. And if you do a good launch, if your launch is surprising and your book is, quote, doing numbers, unquote, suddenly marketing money gets made available. But if your book is not doing well, no marketing money is made available. To him who has, more will be given. And to him who does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. You know what that is? It's a feedback loop. That's what <laughs> creates the Pareto phenomenon. <laughs> That's why it's 80-20 or 198, where 1% of authors make 98% of the money. Which means that your launch is something you that really need to prepare for. And a common mistake I, I see is authors, they sign their book deal. And it's eight months, 12 months, 16 months between when they sign and when their book comes out. And they just sit on their hands during that time. No, you should be preparing your launch, planning your launch that whole time. Because if your launch is good, if it's surprising, if it does numbers, you will be given marketing money and you can become a success. But if you don't, even if you're with the biggest house in the world, they may not spend a penny to help promote your book until you've proven that you're worth it. Yes. And I think the strategy that agents have used in the past is try to get the biggest advance possible as it could apply pressure on the publisher to actually be proactive and do something to recoup the investment. But I, I don't think that, I don't think that's the most terrific strategy in the world, but okay. I don't think it works anymore because the turnover is so high. Because yeah. the team acquiring the book and the team launching the book, the team is all changed or 50% mm. changed. I was talking with one author I was advising. He's been on various bestseller lists for 20 years. He's got some evergreen books that just sell every month. And his one super hit, still selling like crazy. And I asked him, you know, in the last 20 years, how many marketing directors have you had? Right. Cause he has the cell phone number of the marketing directors, right? They had signed him his own marketing assistant, right? He's a big author and he's their big fish. And he, he thinks about it for a while. He's like, probably about two dozen, <laughs> two dozen. Yeah. Or right, Larry, yeah. I think he said at least two dozen in 20 years. That's more than one marketing director per yeah. year. <laughs> And, and that's not uncommon. That, that's not weird of his publisher. In fact, I think describing this, you're like, what publisher is it? And you think about like, well, could have been any of them because <laughs> there's, there's a rotating yeah. door. And so it makes it really hard. So we're, we're talking about the big five. And one of the things I heard about the trial, and you can correct me on this, was that there's been no organic growth at Penguin Random House in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that all of the industry growth has been external 
from them. And the only growth that they've experienced is by buying up other publishers. Yes, this is, I thought this was astonishing. Yes, that was a surprise for me. And it, it points to some sort of dramatic failure. I mean, I guess one could just blame the overall ecosystem. Like, we can't look inside all publishers and see if this was pretty much on par with everyone else. But there was a, a chart that did not get remarked on that often. But someone very astute, someone in Canadian publishing, Kenneth White, has pulled this out multiple times in his newsletter, saying, look at how genre fiction sales declined precipitously from 2011 to 2021. And it breaks it out by like fantasy, mystery, romance. And it, it's like a 75% decline. And where did that go? Why is it so bad? And even though I don't think this was discussed at the trial, why? Because it was kind of irrelevant to the larger point. I think it's self-publishing. I mean, I don't think you can find any other reason or some might say, oh, ebook lending through libraries or subscription services. Like, and so certainly though, I, I see the rise of ebook reading and self-publishing as it has to be contributing to some of the problem with organic growth. As a genre fiction reader, I can attest, 10 years ago, pretty much all of the genre books I was buying were traditionally published. And now I would say probably 70% are independently published. Brandon Sanderson's still traditionally published, so he counts. Although the most recent books of his that I bought straight from him on Kickstarter. That's right. So that, yep. that was kind of an indie purchase. And I've been reading a lot of lit RPG lately. That's mm -hmm. the, the hottest genre in fantasy and sci-fi right now. And almost all of the lit RPG authors are either independently published or where they're with very small houses. So that entire kind of mushroom that's grown out of nowhere very quickly, the big houses have not, I don't think they've acquired any lit RPG authors. Maybe they're starting to in back rooms that I don't know about. But none of the ones I read <laughs> are with a big house. And I think part of it is, if you're writing genre fiction, a lot of the prestige of being with a big house doesn't actually help sell more books. Because genre readers don't really care. Or if they do care, they don't care as much as they would say about price. Because yeah. indie authors are able to be much more competitive on price, especially on ebooks. And so all of the growth in ebooks and most of the money with ebooks is being made by indie authors and small, medium house authors. You know, this reminds me, there's a really big name consultant, not related to publishing industry, I'm not going to name him, who is always crowing about how ebooks never took off. And there were all of these people who said ebooks are going to change the publishing industry. And look, they're only 25% of sales. Well, it doesn't reflect the fact that traditional publishing has priced ebooks in such a way to keep the numbers low and that they've lost this market share we've just discussed because self-publishing authors are pricing in a way that's competitive and allowed them to steal away this market share in part. And I need to underline this every time. Traditional publishing doesn't have visibility into the numbers. So, BookScan doesn't actually know how many ebooks are sold. They just ask the publishers to self-report. Hey, Simon Schuster, how many copies of this book did you sell on ebook? And the problem with that method is that there's no data collection at all of the indie ebook sales. Right. And so if you look at BookScan, ebooks look flat or down. But if you look at, say, Kalytics, ebooks are going through the roof. But all the growth is experienced by the indie authors, not by the traditional authors. Yeah, exactly. Now, BookScan does have really good print 
tallies. Like they do get like through the register pretty with pinpoint accuracy. They can say what's selling in print because they're tracking Amazon and Walmart and Costco and every chain and every indie. But yeah, they, when it comes to ebooks, it's all, like you said, it's all reported by a, a selection of publishers. So let's talk uh, briefly about author royalties, because this was the big focus of the court case. So did we learn anything surprising about author royalties? I think one of the classic findings from the trial was that most authors are not earning out the advance. And as far as royalties go, there was entertaining testimony, <laughs> let's say, from <laughs> agents and authors alike. It, it was very strange, right? Because there was so much confusion about how these numbers work in publishing when it comes to earning out the advance, and then what is the royalty check going to look like? And I don't think many people realize that publishers effectively overpay for books all the time, knowing that it's still going to be a profitable book for them, and they're effectively paying a higher royalty rate, knowingly paying a higher royalty rate. I think one of the best things the judge wrote in her opinion related to this was how publishers, at least the biggest publishers, really don't negotiate on some of the most important deal points. I think she maybe stopped short of calling it collusion, but I think it could be, there could be a case here that ebook royalties are all at 25% and they don't really change. And every author is more or less expected to fork over the ebook and the audiobook rights. And it's really hard to get a deal if you don't. And other th things like this that mean publishers, if they want to give you an attractive deal as an author, they're not going to give you more flexibility. They're just going to pay you a higher advance because they won't pay you a higher royalty. Back during my short time as a literary agent, I found that very fascinating. Because <laughs> like, as as an author, what I care about is the royalty, right? If I'm if I'm confident that my book's going to sell, I don't really care about the advance because I know I'm going to earn that on the back end if I'm if I really think the book's going to sell. Of course, as an agent, as a cynical agent, I know that books never do as well as the author thinks they're going to do, right. and I want as much upfront as I can. <laughs> but you're exactly right; where publishers very rarely are willing to negotiate on the royalty, and when they do, it's often in these kind of pie in the sky elements of the contractors like, well, after you sell a million copies, right. then the royalty will bump up su such and such. And it's like, yeah, it's like, that's very unlikely to get there. It, it does seem like collusion, but soft collusion, right? So yeah. there's illegal collusion where there's a backfield room and everyone's on their pipes and they're like, we're going to set it at 25%. And then there's a kind of collusion that happens when you don't have enough players in a market where everyone just matches everyone else and you don't have enough leverage as an author to get them to budge. And as an individual, if somebody dangles a million dollars in your face, you're like, ooh, a million dollars, that's a lot. And so suddenly that percentage you don't care as much about. Right, right, precisely. What were some other surprises that you saw from the court case? What else caught you by surprise? Well, there was this statistic that kind of was mentioned as a, just a, like – Oh, it was just thrown out casually that most books don't sell more than 12 copies. <laughs> 12! And I certainly picked up on that, and it did seem like kind of a ridiculous figure. But I thought, well, you know, there was a lot of specificity tied to it, but it was never, no one ever returned to it in the trial. And I don't know what the source for it was. Maybe but it was under oath. It was under oath, or no, actually, 
I think it was cited by an attorney as he was trying to like get some information out of one of the analysts, but no one okay. challenged the figure. Wow. <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah, you know, and like everyone moved on. So when I mentioned this figure in my reporting, it resulted in a lot of angst, as you can imagine, from the peanut gallery out on social media. And there was some pushback about, well, this can't possibly be true. It's made up. It's a myth. And what was so fascinating for me about the argument about this was that one of BookScan's analysts came out of the woodwork to address it because it was generally assumed this figure must have somehow come from BookScan because you would have to be looking at a really large number of publishers and titles to be able to come up with an average like that. And she said, okay, here's how I think they might have gotten that statistic. And she said, it's not the majority of titles, but it's probably 19%, <laughs> which did, <laughs> did not make people feel better. <laughs> that's a very specific percentage. That's, that's a one out of five chance that if you're published with one of the big publishers, you will sell 12 copies or less. And that's a really low threshold, right? Because as somebody who understands the Pareto distribution, you're like, well, if you raise that to 50 copies, that percentage of books probably raises to 30%. Right? And what you have is a tiny number of books that are selling all of the copies. And yeah. this whole industry is a handful of people who are making all of the money and are supporting all of the other people who are effectively making no money. <laughs> yes, yes. And it might not have been 19, but it was like something like that. Not a reassuring figure, regardless of how low it was. But I think, like what you said, I think the big takeaway was most books don't do that well. And they don't do well in the places that a typical author values. So there were a lot of people talking about, well, these figures are low because they're not counting libraries or they're not counting bulk orders. Yes, there may be a dozen different things that books can, can't track. But you know where most authors want to see their sales happen? Through a bookstore, uh, to a reader, through through online (laughs) retail. So I think there's more truth than myth in it. I think it's a nice wake up call because what is it? There's only one in five people in the United States that can be classified as an avid reader, meaning you can actually market a book to them and there's a good chance they'll buy it if it's in the category or genre they enjoy. One out of five. And that's not many. This is kind of moving away from the trial, but I recently had a conversation with an analyst who does consumer research, Peter Hildick-Smith, and he takes publishers to task for not doing the consumer research and for not supporting the books so that they do sell well when they launch. And he's really reiterating how it takes so many impressions, it takes so much time for an author to be able to sell a book just because their name is on it. He gave me a case study of an author who I think everyone would be shocked to learn, truly shocked that after having an amazing award-winning best-selling book for years and years, their next book released not that long after, and it has sold a tiny, tiny fraction because no one remembers the name. And it's tough. It's really tough. And publishers obviously aren't helping because they don't necessarily feel responsible for building the author's platform or brand recognition. It's interesting because publishers have a disincentive to do that. Because if I'm a publisher and I want to sign Jane Friedman 
to be an author with me. The more famous Jane Friedman is, the more I have to pay to sign her. <laughs> and yes. the more famous I make you, the more expensive you are for the next book. And maybe you're, I suddenly can't afford you anymore. And so you take your big platform to my competitor and you publish your next book with my competitor. And all that money I spent building you up is now helping my competitor. It's not helping me. And this is a powerful disincentive. Uh, for the publishing companies that I consult with, one of the pieces of advice that I have is to make your name mean something. This is where Random House is really at a disadvantage because their whole founding ethos was that they just pick random books that they think are winners on an individual book basis. <laughs> so Random House doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you what kind of book it is other than that the editorial board thought the book was good. But the more you can make your brand mean something particularly attached to a genre, the and the more of a relationship you can have with readers, the more effective you can be. You see Tor doing this a little bit. You see Bain doing this better. There's some romance imprints that do this well. And it's really, I feel like the only path forward is better branding, right? Yeah. Readers need to know what the logo means on the spine. <laughs> and I think the company that does this the best is Wiley & Sons with books like the Dummies books, right? They're able to pay half as much of a royalty than their competitors, it's like yeah. 7%. But authors are willing to sign it because they know that Wiley & Sons is going to be able to put that book in front of a lot of readers. And because that ugly yellow cover will sell a lot of copies because they have a brand that means something and authors want to be attached to a strong brand. Yeah. So switching gears for a moment, you asked, what are some other surprises that came out? And since this wasn't the point of the trial, it wasn't really much discussed in the media. But we talked about how Penguin Random House saw its market share not gain and maybe lost. The other thing they looked at is for the advances they were paying over that 10-year period, obviously it was very important for the government to prove that the advances were declining. And the reason that they focused on the top 2% was because the trial showed. For the other 98%, advances stay the same or they increase a little bit over that time period. As Penguin Random House and other of these really huge companies have become more risk averse. And as they become these huge, huge entities, it has opened up a lot of room for smaller presses, independent presses, and obviously self-publishing authors to have a meaningful role in the marketplace. And when it comes to the decline of the top 2%, part of me is wondering, is that real or is it just because no Obama signed any book deals? And I mean this in all sincerity, because in 2015, there was a lot of buzz in the entertainment news that CD sales were up. And everyone's like, oh, you know, CDs are coming back. But if you went into the numbers, really what you saw was that Adele sold so many CDs that she moved CD sales positive, yes. single-handedly. It wasn't that CDs as a category were doing well. It was that Adele specifically was doing well. And the Obamas, their advance was, what was it, $80 million, $100 million? Uh, it was a lot. It's some, some crazy number. Some number that if you include it in your sample set and take an average rather than a median, and people who are bad with statistics love averages, and averages get thrown around way too much. This is a rant for another day. It's like, yeah, any year that doesn't have an Obama signing a book deal is going to look awful compared to a year where an Obama did sign a book deal if their book deals are $100 million, right? Like $100 million is so much more than 250K. It, it kind of breaks the mind to imagine it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Something, a recent example of what you're describing as far as how one author can really change the dynamics of what you're seeing is Colleen Hoover in the past couple of years has had the power to lift the fortunes of Simon and Schuster. I mean, Colleen Hoover publishes with a number of houses, but Simon and Schuster is the particularly lucky recipient of some of her works that have been releasing in the last few years. And so, you know, Simon and Schuster is doing great up until this last quarter when they just don't have as good of Colleen Hoover sales as they used to. <laughs> and I think that's another thing that the trial helped show or demonstra demonstrate very clearly that the industry does depend on having these blockbusters to keep things moving. And they also need books that are going to backlist well, because it's such an engine, money engine to keep things going forward. Yeah, let's break that down because that's some industry jargon and it's important to, to understand. So when you say backlist, well, you're talking about a book that has evergreen sales. So the typical novel has a big surge and it gets most of its sales in the first 30 days, 60 days. Brandon Sanderson gets 50% of his sales before the book comes out. So by day one, he's already experienced more sales than he will experience all the future days of his book because his audience pre-orders. <laughs> Not every author's audience is like that, but Brandon's audience is like that. So that's kind of the typical, you have this big curve and then this long decline where each day is selling a little bit less than the day before, unless there's a book bub or something. But some books just keep selling year after year, sometimes decade after decade. I can't tell you how many times I've purchased the Chronicles of Narnia. I just reread them with my kids. They loved them, right? I've bought that book so many times. They're not spending any money making new Chronicles of Narnia books. They're just making making profit off of a dead author's books that are still popular. And that is actually what funds a lot of publishing, these evergreen backlist books where there's no big costs. There's just printing and the margins on pure printing are really high and the predictability is really high. So Jane Friedman is this hot new author. Everyone's bidding on her. I'm curious. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a million dollar advance. I don't know how well it's going to sell. But if I have a Jane Friedman book that's been selling, you know, 2,000 units a year for the last 20 years, well, it's probably going to sell about 2,000 units next year, which means I can plan for that and I can manage my warehouse and all the boring business stuff that authors don't like to think about changes and becomes really easy for those evergreen books. Yep. And uh, there was one analyst in particular, I think it was Kathleen Schmidt, who has worked at most of the big five, I think at this point, and is a publicist. The thing that she kept hitting again and again is the big publishers have an advantage because they have these backlists. It just gives you the leeway to take more risks because you've got that money coming in. Most of the books that are sold, most of the books that are published are published and sold outside of the big five. It's not like in Hollywood, right? The top five studios, that's pretty much all of Hollywood. There's not a lot of movies that are made outside of those big five studios. And a lot of the studios that you think are a different studio is really just, oh, that was Disney. I didn't know Disney owned them. I was like, Disney owns everybody, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's not that way in publishing because the cost of starting your own publishing house is so much lower. It's not hard to enter. There's a lot of churn. And a lot of small houses, if they figure things out and they get a couple of hits, suddenly they become medium-sized houses. And there's a lot of companies in that kind of should be in the big five, but aren't conversation like Scholastic. And so if you're not picked up by a big five house, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful doesn't mean they're not going to sell copies i've interviewed indie authors on this show who sold over a million copies as an indie author and i'll tell you if i could choose to sell a million copies with a big five house or on my own i'd want to do it on my own because guess who gets to keep 70 percent of the money the author <laughs> i think 
this is encouraging for most authors who know that the big five isn't in their future. They're like, oh, I don't need them. They don't determine whether I'm good. They don't determine whether I'm successful. And if, even if they did pick me, that wouldn't make me successful because I may only sell 12 copies. <laughs> right. And I, this is something that I also tried to express whenever I had a chance during this trial is that it's really focused on a particular kind of publishing. It, it didn't look at the vast universe of publishers. It was really focused on the big five and a few of that small little outlying companies. They were only concerned with the publishers that were competing for the million dollar books. And that's just a very particular type of author. It's the Obamas of the world. It's a handful of debut authors. It's not most of us. And I think that's encouraging because my likelihood of becoming president is very low. But my <laughs> likelihood of writing a successful book is quite a bit higher than that. Well, if you want to keep up with what's going on in publishing, I highly recommend the hot sheet. Jane's not giving me anything for telling you this. In fact, she still charges me for the hot <laughs> sheet, but it's not a lot of emails. It's, I think it's an email every other week. So it doesn't blow up my inbox, but it's a really good summary of what's going on in publishing. And what I like about the hot sheet is that it doesn't just cover the big five. It also covers the mid market and the indie market. And she even works with Alex from Kalytics to cover the real numbers from the ebook market, which you don't really get anywhere else. So Jane, thank you so much for coming on. If you haven't yet checked out the hot sheet, you really should. We'll have a link to it. And Jane, any final tips or encouragement? Publish in a way that suits your goals and try to avoid the lure of prestige or status that comes with a big advance. <laughs> oh, that, that is life advice. <laughs> <laughs> prestige is a trap. Jane Friedman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you. Our sponsor today is Top of the World Publishing. You've written a book. Then you look at the Amazon categories, keywords, BISACs, SEO, metadata, cover art, formatting requirements, promotion, reviewers, and scams. Why does it have to be so hard? Well, that's where Top of the World Publishing comes in. Top of the World works hard so that authors like you can focus on writing books the world wants to read. This means no more waiting years for release. From contract to publication, the goal is four months. No more half-hearted marketing attempts using outdated tactics. The Top of the World marketing team has a background in data analytics, which means they know how to measure to see what works and do more of that. And they're a full royalty publisher. You don't pay a dime for Top of the World to publish your book. They make money when you make money. So sit back, relax, and let the experts at Top of the World take care care of the ugly parts of publishing. Spend more time doing what you love and watch the world change as a result. Visit topoftheworldpublishing.com today. Join them where you belong on top of the world. And a bit of show news. This is the official 400th episode of novel marketing. <laughs> the 400 episodes of this podcast going all the way back to 2013. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. The show would not be here without you. And I'd also like to thank all of the new patrons who joined last month. Max Moyer, Keith Ryans, Michael Fedor, Julie Apilinaro, Steve Fowler, Elisa Evans, Will Simpson, Holly Bryce Fry, Annette O'Hare, Dalton Blankenship, Mindy, Russell Caudry, and RBG. Thank you so much for your financial support. It is not cheap to make this podcast, and I could not do it without you. 
Now, the Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of authormedia.com. Our guest today was Jane Friedman. Our producer is Lori Christine. Audio editing is done by William Umstadt, and the blog post is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read the blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com slash 400. Easy to remember. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.